Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hello, friends, and welcome to Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the Oakland Hills, translated into 195 different languages. We are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. Please keep your questions and comments coming in. They're very helpful. Subscribe to the podcast. Let everybody know who you think might enjoy the podcast that we're here. And please keep supporting the companies that support us, Harborside, Homegrown, and Liberty Clothing. I'm really excited about the show today. Um, When I started learning about cannabis as a young teenager in the early 1970s, information about cannabis was really difficult to come by. I used to skip school and go out to the University of Maryland and sneak into the university library just to find some information. Um, and, and then after digging through like innumerable card catalogs and old dusty folios and miles and miles of these stacks in the libraries, the only information I could really find was it was dated. There was nothing recent. So I learned about cannabis from the 1894 Indian Hemp Drugs Commission, which was commissioned by the British Parliament, from the 1921 Canal Zone study that was done by the U.S. Army. There there just wasn't any more recent material than that because all of the people who would produce that, all of the academics, all of the researchers, all of the would-be authors had been terrorized out of touching the subject. The stigma and the legal oppression was just so heavy back then. So now we're in a much more fortunate place. Uh, We have seen the legal reforms and the de-escalation of stigma now reach into the halls of academia. And there's a whole new generation of archaeologists, geographers, historians, um, who are uncovering uh, new information about cannabis, who are taking a fresh look with fresh eyes that are not uh, blinded by stigma or, or fear of harm to, to reputations. And we're learning some really incredible things about cannabis. Um, one of the most important thinkers in this new wave of cannabis research is our guest today, Chris Duval. Chris is professor of geography at the University of New Mexico, and he's the author of a really exciting book entitled The African Roots of Marijuana. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, and I'm, I'm happy to speak about the topic. Great. So um, this is, this is uh, such a meaty topic. I, I want to spend our, our little while here just sort of laying out the story that you tell. Um, maybe if you could start uh, talking about how cannabis first came to Africa. Yeah, so, you know, cannabis, as you know, uh, evolutionary, uh, in evolutionary terms, originated in Central Asia, and it traveled through Central and Southern Asia in, you know, the millennia, in the, you know, BCE. And by about a thousand years BCE, it was widespread in, in South Asia and in the Indian uh, subcontinent. And it entered into trade routes that uh, connected uh, India with East uh, Africa. So the Swahili coast, generally speaking. So modern Kenya and Tanzania, 
um, it traveled by that route, and that route has been known, you know, for quite a while uh, by historians. But if you look at other evidence, it's clear that cannabis came to Africa before that, right? Uh, in the early, you know, uh, AD period, it seems to have somehow crossed from, you know, what's modern Indonesia to, toward uh, Madagascar. And from Madagascar is really where it spread inland uh, into the continent. So areas like Mozambique and ultimately up the Zambezi River Valley and, and onward across the continent. So cannabis originates in Central Asia, uh, uh, slips down to India, is picked up by existing trade routes. Um, how did it get to Indonesia? Well, we don't really know a whole lot about that because there hasn't been a whole lot of research on cannabis uh, in Southeast Asia, either historically or, or through archaeological means. And Mostly we're able to kind of infer this based on language patterns and patterns of technology of, of pipes and, and the, the, the type of paraphernalia that people use to consume cannabis as, as a drug. Um, so, you know, a lot of the knowledge that we have of the early dispersal of cannabis, whether it's in Asia or to Africa or through Africa is based on inference, based on um, you know, language patterns, but there is also, you know, important archaeological evidence in different locations as well. And, and in Africa, that is mostly paraphernalia, whereas in, in Asia and Europe, there's, there's evidence that's based on, you know, uh, hemp seeds and, and other things like that. So cannabis comes to Africa in the early AD, um, and then it, then it crosses Africa. Could you describe to us what, what that process looked like? Um, uh, from the time that it, it comes to Africa and as it crosses the continent? Yeah, so the early part of that history is, like I said, a lot of it's based on inference, based on, on language and, and terms used for cannabis and things like that. We have really clear historical documentation, though, written documentation starting in, in about the late 1600s or early 1700s. But basically the story is, you know, in the early period before we have written documentation, it traveled you know, clearly it traveled up the Zambezi River, you know, so again, you know, from modern Mozambique towards modern Angola. And it was one of a suite of crops that, you know, include things like sugarcane and chickens as well, bananas that traveled ultimately from Asia, Southern Asia across the continent. And so we know based on archeology span of these other, you know, plants and in, in animals, kind of how, you know, crops traveled and they mostly traveled along the southern Congo Basin. Um, so, you know, the southern edge of the modern, you know, Democratic Republic of the Congo. That was the biggest, most important kind of pathway. There was also a pathway across um, the northern part of the Congo Basin, but that was less uh, impactful overall. And the documentation that we have, again, starting in the 1600s, but particularly in the 1800s, shows that cannabis traveled in various trade networks. Um, some of these networks were just, you know, uh, indigenous exchanges for different crops and, and goods and things like that. But in the 1700s and 1800s, a really important uh, trade vector was the slave trade. Um, uh, so uh, tell us a little bit more about that, Chris, because uh, this is, you know, where the story, I think, starts to get really, really fascinating. Yeah, so um, 
again, we know a lot about the slave trade. There's, there's been historians that have studied that for, for you know, a couple of centuries. And so we know a lot about the population movements. We know a lot about the networks and the way that people traded um, goods for humans, right? And so what we didn't know very well um, up until recently um, was the role that cannabis had in this. And there are there's very good documentation from the 1800s in particular um, about how slaves valued cannabis and how slavers valued cannabis as well. And generally speaking, it was kind of an all-purpose medical um, agent for the slaves, but it was it was a stimulant as well. And so there's lots of stories about hard laborers, you know, smoking cannabis first thing in the morning as, as a motivation. And the slavers supplied this um, in many cases. There was uh, a commercial trade in cannabis that was parallel to the slave trade, there's stories of slaves being made to carry um, commercial shipments of cannabis to, towards the coast where there was larger markets um, as well. And so it was really something that, that enabled slaving and people to endure slaving to some extent, um, but it was also a commercial product itself that kind of paralleled um, these slave trading networks. Now, one of the really sophisticated things that you do in this book um, uh, that got my attention is you take a look at reports that, uh, that slaves and other people used cannabis to quell hunger um, and, and to build energy. And that is a little bit uh, counter to the popular impression of cannabis, at least uh, here in North America, which is that when you consume cannabis, it, it makes you hungrier. You get the munchies you want to eat. And you came up with this just beautiful explanation of that. Could you could you talk a little bit about um, about your analysis there, Chris? Yeah. So you know that's that's one thing about studying cannabis is you have to address the stereotypes that exist within our society. And a lot of people look at cannabis historically and interpret the historical documents based on you know what they know from Cheech and Chong or Pineapple Express or things like that that you know, cannabis is really powerfully driven by, you know, the effects of cannabis are really powerfully driven by social context. But there's also, you know, and that's what is called the subjective effects of, of marijuana. There are also what are called objective effects that are based on plant chemistry, right? And so you had two things going on in this, these historical contexts that I look at. One is the social context where people, you know, thought that this was a stimulant, that you use it in the morning to get going, you use it during the day to keep going, right? And so you had that dynamic going on. But then you also had this distinctive chemical um, presence within the cannabis that, that developed in, in Southern and, and Southeastern Asia, or uh, I'm sorry, Southeastern Africa in particular. And this is the cannabis that is rich in tetrahydrocannabivirin or THCV, right? And people nowadays who, who are involved with, with breeding and, and looking for, you know, land races to take into uh, breeding programs, they really value these strains, you know, strains like Malawi gold, uh, Durban poison, you know, the original, um, you know, iterations of that. Um, 
because this cannabinoid THCV is actually actually functions as an appetite suppressant uh, when people consume it. And so the modern strains that people buy in dispensaries um, that, you know, people who are looking for appetite suppression for whatever reason, they look for the THCV levels in, in these um, uh, in the material that they buy. And we have, you know, historical, you know, descriptions of use and historical, um, you know, uh, description of why people valued the the cannabis in, in Southeast Asia, uh, Southeast Africa, I said that again, uh, you know, Southeast Africa and across the continent, they valued it specifically for appetite suppression. And the farmers who were growing for them you know, responded to that. And so the selective practices that farmers use really produce these, these strains that, that have this distinctive cannabinoid profile that met the social demands uh, that existed at that time. Well, um, uh, my metaphorical hat is off to you for so elegantly integrating cannabis biochemistry with geography and, and history. It's, it's just a beautiful analysis. So let's jump back here on the cannabis trail. We are uh, moving through Africa. The slave trade plays an important role in the dispersal of cannabis across Africa. And, and, and then we, we get to the coast. So what happens there? Yeah, so just to kind of contextualize what, I, what I'll say here is, is it's really important to pay attention to African geography. Too often people just say Africa is this, and uh, there's a lot of variation there. And so really what I'm talking about when I talk about cannabis crossing the Atlantic is a very specific component of the, the trade that exists in enslaved people. And we're really talking about areas from you know, modern coastal Angola up to modern uh, Gabon, right? And the people that ended up being shipped from those ports in that area, they came from, you know, the southern uh, Congo River Basin is mostly where they came from. And Europeans at that point in time called all of the people kind of generically that were shipped from those ports, they just called them Congos, right? And that's not a term that existed necessarily beforehand. It was just a term that slavers came up to with to label this segment of the enslaved population, right? And so in these ports, um, you know, and we have, you know, historical descriptions of these processes happening, um, the enslaved people, you know, kept seeds, they protected seeds of various plants, because these plants were valuable to them, they didn't know where they're going to end up, and they wanted to plant them wherever it was they ended up. We have accounts of cannabis being kept by a slave in Gabon, and we have the pattern that exists around the Atlantic where these so-called Congos were disembarked, right? We see in those locations, the plant, the terminology, the words that people use for the plant and kind of the general practices of using it in that particular way. Um, there are folk songs in some locations, particularly um, Brazil, but also Jamaica about you know, these so-called Congos uh, bringing the plant. Uh, and once it arrived in those societies, there was a lot of people from all sorts of different backgrounds that found value to it. And so it kind of spread once it got to the Americas through a number of different people, not just this specific you know, group of folks that were, you know, enslaved and shipped from Western Central Africa. So for those of our audience who are not deeply familiar with cannabis history, 
what Chris has just laid out is really a absolutely groundbreaking new theory. The received wisdom uh, and learning on cannabis, as I learned it through my research, was that cannabis came to the Americas through the hands of Europeans who brought it because they, were, they needed hemp for their sailing empires, for their maritime empires, and that the seeds from that hemp uh, eventually you know, found their way and were bred into higher THC varieties. Uh, so this theory that Chris has laid out, that in fact, um, one of the major factors in the dispersal of cannabis, the bringing of cannabis, the bringing of this amazing plant to the Americas, came through the hands of Africans, came through the hands of black people, not only just black people, but people who were enslaved. And I just, it's incredible, Chris, to imagine, um, you know, I mean, we think about the Middle Passage and, and, and how difficult that was. What what did slaves have to do to to be able to do this smuggling? Do we have any kind of idea? Yeah, um, you know we do, and you know I, at some point I want to go back to what you're talking about the European role and just kind of tie that into plant taxonomy. But to just you know answer your question directly, um, for cannabis we have accounts. We have a couple of accounts of of people actually saving seeds, or we have you know oral histories that that tell us. And for cannabis, the story is that, you know, um, you know, some enslaved people are allowed to, to wear rags. Um, some enslaved people were forced to go without clothing on, on the ships. And, and we have stories of people that had the rags with them, the clothing with them, of, you know, wadding up little corners of that clothing, the rags, with cannabis seeds inside, right? And we have a gown of that from Brazil. Um, we also have accounts of other plants. And, and so, you know, the question of, you know, looking at African influences on, you know, uh, agriculture across the uh, Atlantic, there's another geographer named Judith Carney uh, at UCLA who has studied rice. And rice was very important for enslaved people coming from, you know, the region of what's now Senegal. And she has accounts that, you know, that she's collected of people, of women storing seeds within their braids and things like that. So, um, you know, enslavement, you know, produced unimaginable constraints on people, obviously. But in every case, those people looked for ways to preserve themselves, preserve their society, preserve their culture. And seeds were an incredibly, you know, valuable way to do that. Um, and just really briefly, you know, I also believe that, that slavers carried the seeds across the Atlantic too, because they, um, you know, carried uh, material for people to smoke, uh, is what my inference is, but I haven't found evidence of that, but I'm guessing that the, the slavers carried it in order to supply people as well. Um, wow. Uh, so this is, uh, this is such an incredible story and it's, it's so different to the most commonly known story. You mentioned the Europeans and the, the taxonomical, uh, evidence that there is. Do you want to get into that for a little bit and, and, and talk to us about the European role in bringing cannabis to the Americas? Yeah, I mean, for, the first thing to say is that Europeans were very important in bringing cannabis across the Atlantic but just certain knowledge about it and certain, you know, kind of genetic um, populations, I guess, of the plant. 
And so, you know, for me, the theoretical basis of the history I do really traces to kind of the research that's been done in the past 15 or 20 years on cannabis uh, genetics. And, you know, if you talk about cannabis taxonomy or nomenclature, it's inevitably messy and controversial sometimes. Um, but what is very clear from the genetic evidence is that there's kind of two major groups of plants. One that, that has the genetic machinery to produce high amounts of THC, the other that doesn't. And that's consistent in the populations that have been, have been studied in you know, throughout the world. And of course, these populations, um, you know, are interfertile, so you can have differences going on uh, because of this kind of hybridization. But historically, the plants that were in Europe um, basically didn't have the genetic machinery to produce THC, right? And so this kind of conundrum that has existed um, for historians of, you know, how do we explain the appearance of cannabis that gets a person high when it didn't in Europe? Um, instead of saying, well, let's look at different plant populations and how those plant populations have traveled. Uh, instead, they just use race um, to explain that. So, you know, there's, there's, you know, recent books that, you know, explain the origin, origin of marijuana in the United States simply by saying, oh, you know, black people knew what to do with it and white people didn't, which just goes into this kind of modern construction of, of drug use as a racially determined behavior, right? And that's just, that's underlied, you know, that underlies um, unfair policing practices, unfair imprisonment uh, practices. And so I'm really trying to you know, excavate the historical ideas that enable those kind of racially deterministic ideas that exist in our society nowadays, right? And so at the very bottom of what I'm doing is this, this genetic understanding of cannabis that says we need to have two histories of this plant. They intermix, you know, in certain places and times, but really we have to see how this plant has traveled in, in two very different ways over the course of, of its existence. Right. Of course, the truth is that cannabis has been used by almost every culture on the planet uh, for millennia for a very wide variety of reasons. And, and us human beings move around. And as we've heard, cannabis is one of the things that we've always made sure that we took with us when we moved from one place to another. So, so just to tie a bow in this, Chris, um, uh, cannabis moves from Africa uh, across the Atlantic to South America. And, uh, and, and, then, and then what happens from there? Where does it go from that landing? Yeah, so it, it, it lands in a number of spots and we can pinpoint a couple, you know, not pinpoint, but generally speaking, Brazil is a very important location. Um, Jamaica is another important location. Basically where we see these so-called Congos, uh, you know, these people uh, being disembarked from the slave ships, we see evidence that the plant showed up there. There's a couple of exceptions to that that I'll, you know, that I'll need to note. But uh, pretty much wherever you know, these, this group of enslaved people show up, we have evidence of the plant showing up. Now, you know, who historically valued cannabis? It's people who had very difficult lives, hard laborers who, who needed you know, medic, medical support, who needed escape from their, their, their lives. Um, and so once it arrived in these places with, you know, these so-called Congos, these, this group of people, others found the plant valuable. 
he said, hey, this helps me in my situation. Um, I like this, right? And so it, it quickly spread to other groups, people that had no historical, no geographic connection to Central Africa uh, at all. I mean, there's, there's stories of, you know, people from Western, you know, West Africa um, using cannabis in Brazil and, and cannabis didn't exist in West Africa until much later. And so in the Americas, it spread through these kind of labor networks of, of sailors, right? There's a lot of stories of sailors. Those were the people who ultimately brought it to the Eastern United States. There's a lot of stories of, of migrant laborers. You know, those are the, the people who brought it to the Western United States and, you know, of prison gangs, of, of you know, drafted soldiers, people that, that we're dealing with difficult conditions. And so it spread with, with people of all types of backgrounds. You know, it's not a Central African thing. It's not an African thing in the modern world. It's something that's associated with, with class and it has been for, for some time. Um, so it kind of spread in those, those social ways rather than in any sort of geographic or ethnic uh, type of, of ways uh, once it gets across the Atlantic. So you touched on Jamaica. Let's talk a little more deeply about Jamaica. And again, for the benefit of our audience that may not realize how groundbreaking Chris's research is. The, the, again, the received wisdom and knowledge that I got was that cannabis came to Jamaica in, in, in the hands mostly of uh, East Indian servants who the British imported to serve them in Jamaica. Um, servants, I'm sure some of them were actually indentured laborers, um, and they brought cannabis with them, uh, building on this long, long history that, that India has with cannabis. Uh, but Chris, um, if we're understanding you correctly, your belief is that cannabis actually came to Jamaica prior to the Indians. Um, yeah, and so you know the 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 Indian connection. If we can walk through history backwards um, to kind of you know, I think it's a way of explaining where this idea came from, right? So, what do you say if you want marijuana in Jamaica? Most people say ganja. And where's that term from? That's very clearly from Hindi, um, you know, spoken in South Asia. Um, but it really came into widespread use in Jamaica and elsewhere in the Caribbean because it was what the British, um, you know, put in their first drug control laws in the early 20th century, the late 19th century. And so people learned to say ganja to a large extent because that's what the, the laws banned, right? And so they were just using the legal language. Where did the legal scholars or the, the lawmakers get that, that word. Well, a lot of those British colonialists had experience in India before coming to the Caribbean, and they saw how people use ganja there. And ganja, you know, is the flowers, basically, and that, that um, you know, that was used in South Asia for, you know, we have records going back to the 1300s, if not earlier, of people using flowers in particular, and it was associated with with hard labors in many cases there because it was it packed a punch, right? It was more densely, you know, psychoactive than than bong, which is the the mixed leaves and flowers and stems and things like that. And so the the indentured laborers that came to the Caribbean did bring ganja. And they also bought it on, on open markets, right? There was a legal market uh, at that point in time. 
and yet we have to ask, well, why were they ended up going going to um, you know the Caribbean to begin with? Well, they the British brought indentured laborers from India um, primarily to replace slaves. Right, and so when slavery was uh, banned uh, in the Caribbean in the various locations, mostly you know between 1808 and 1840, um, they could no longer bring people from Africa, enslaved people, and so they needed to have a replacement for those people. But if you look at the actual numbers of folks who came, many more came from Western Central Africa before the Indians showed up, right? Before the British brought the Indians there. And if you look at the terms that are used for cannabis in Jamaica and elsewhere, you actually find a, a, a long list of words that trace back to Western Central Africa. They're kind of the, the, the terms that are used up in the hills or, or places that aren't you know, necessarily mainstream culture anymore. They're used in oral histories and things like that. And we see this, you know, again, this kind of Atlantic wide pattern of bunch of people called Congos arriving, and then you have the language and the plant and the plant use um, appearing soon after. Well, this is, uh, this is so profound. I, I think that a lot of my Rastafarian brethren are going to be really interested to learn that, in fact, cannabis came to Jamaica first from Africa. Uh, and uh, there's some 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 African terms. One of the things that struck me, being a Bob Marley uh, fan, was kaya. Could you could you tell us a little bit about where where the Jamaican word kaya for cannabis comes from? Yeah, and and just you know you mentioned Rasta. I mean, uh, some of the Rastas I've talked to about this, they recognize that 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 history is there, but they just don't necessarily know it. And there's some smaller traditions uh, within Jamaica, the Kumina tradition in particular, very much ties cannabis to this, this Central African past. Um, there is some you know, record of pipes and pipe terms being used there as well. Um, so the term kaya, again, like there's, you know, there's a couple of terms that are really widely known um, that people use uh, about cannabis, but there's dozens of other names that occur around the Atlantic. And Kaya is one that you can see in different parts of the Atlantic world, including, um, you know, um, uh, Brazil and in elsewhere in Central America. And basically, this is is what what I would argue. I mean, there's, um, you know, again, it's it's based on linguistic patterns uh, in general is that it's a short form of the term makaya, which is used widely in Western Central Africa. And basically it means some tobacco to smoke. Um, it, it translates precisely in a little different way. But this is a common formulation of, of um, how people talk about things that they'll smoke um, across, uh, you know, around Western Central Africa and around the Atlantic. Um, a lot of the terms are kind of have unclear meanings, right? Smoke, uh, leaves, um, or tobacco, right? Tobacco hid a lot of different things that people smoke, and kaya was one of those terms. Um, I, don't, I can't say specifically about Jamaica just because we don't have that evidence, but elsewhere, the, the term kaya or makaya or makanya were all used to just kind of say, oh, I'm just smoking some stuff rather than specifically what, what the person was doing. Uh, another one of the really remarkable things that you did in the book was come up with a term for a phenomena that I've seen and been aware of for a long time, but I didn't really know how to name it. And you call it linguistic 
subterfuge. And it's really what we've always done, um, which is invent code words for cannabis so that the so that the man can't catch us. And that's been done in a lot of different ways. Oh, by so many different cultures and so many people. But but now we have this example uh, of Kaya from Makaya being part of that that long lineage of tradition. Um, just remarkable, remarkable research that you've done here. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've heard too of some people uh, uh, in Jamaica talking about cannabis having come uh, from Africa, but nobody really knows when or how or, or you know, how to fill in those blanks. And I think that you've gone a long way uh, to doing that. And I think it's going to be really meaningful information for, for a lot of people. It's, it's, it's meaningful information uh, for me. Um, let's talk about North America uh, a little bit. Um, um, uh, and how 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 cannabis came here? It, it, it there doesn't uh, seem to be evidence that it was brought by enslaved people, but it, it apparently was brought by Afro Caribbean people. Could you talk about that and how that all happened? Yeah, and uh, just let me make sure. Like the term linguistic subterfuge, I took that from a guy named Brian Dutois, who's a sociologist, and he wrote a book in the late 1970s called Cannabis in Africa. Now that, that's has been the state of the art, and so I, I get it from him. Um, but it's definitely something that makes it a challenge to know exactly what you know. Sometimes know exactly what people were were talking about. Now in North America, there's um, kind of generally speaking, two routes that, that psychoactive cannabis um, traveled through. One is overland in the Western. Actually, let me step back. There's kind of three routes that, that I want to mention. The one in the Western U.S. where I am, right, is migrant laborers from um, uh, Central America, from Mexico in particular. And they came up the Rio Grande Valley where I'm at right now in the you know 1890s. And there's been some great work. This guy named Nick Johnson wrote a book called Grassroots that looked at you know, migrant farm labor, sugar beet laborers who um, brought the, the plant widely in the Western United States. In the Eastern United States, it really was um, you know, sailors, right? And we have evidence ranging from you know, an account of a Sierra Leonean sailor um, who was busted in New York City in like 1938, I think, with, with cannabis. But then also a lot of stories of, you know, you know, stevedores and laborers and stuff on ships, uh, you know, New Orleans to, to, you know, various points in the Caribbean, uh, people coming up from Brazil as well, carrying it. And that's really how it arrived in the, the Eastern United States. And then the last route that I'll mention is that the cannabis grown for hemp in East Asia. So we're talking China and the Koreas and Japan. Um, actually is the THC rich uh, genetic subgroup, right? And, you know, people didn't produce it for psychoactive uses predominantly in, in East Asia, but instead for hemp. And in the 1840s or so, um, Europeans found these hemp varieties in Western, in Eastern Asia and they found them to be very effective in growing in Europe, and they were also brought to the Americas. And so um, when you read stories, there's, there's accounts from the 1860s onward of people being able to actually get high from um, hemp grown in the United States. It mostly traces to those, um, or it entirely really traces to those 
East Asian varieties that were introduced for, for hemp production. Um, and that's, you know, ditch weed is where that stuff comes from. So cannabis comes to North America through the hands of black and brown people. And, uh, and, and that's ever since then in the United States, uh, we've associated race and cannabis with each other. It's, it's, it's a little bit um, different from this historical pattern that you've been describing, Chris, where there's more of an association between social class uh, and cannabis. What do you think happened here in, in North America? Yeah, so I mean, race and class are important to kind of understand for everyone in, in our society. I'm, you know, obviously coming from a my position, it's a position of privilege. I'm a tenured professor, I'm a white male. I can write about these things and I can, you know, challenge stigmas. Um, you know, you mentioned stigmas early on when you started here and like I still get people when I say, oh, I study cannabis, you know, just kind of, you know, elbow you and say, oh, you're a stoner, right? Um, and so a lot of times people are uncomfortable talking about drug use <laughs> in addition to being uncomfortable about talking about, you know, race. And the reality is in our country and historically elsewhere in the um, Atlantic basin, um, race and class were co-produced, but they're not the same thing, right? And what that means, co-production, is that based on what you look like, you know, what racially, you know, define, you know, however race was defined in a given context, if you were categorized in a different racial category, you had different options available to you, and that still exists, right? You, you had different pathways within society available to you, yet, in classes, in social classes, there's always been all, you know, racial groups um, represented, right? And, and if you look at the historical documentation of cannabis use, it's not black people, it's not brown people, it's people who were marginalized socially and economically. There's plenty of accounts of white people, of Europeans using cannabis, of Asians, people from South Asia using cannabis. And what is the thread? It's not race, it's not geography, it's class, right? This is a plant that is effective in a number of different applications, you know, medicinal um, psychoactive uh, applications. And it's, it's pretty inexpensive to produce, right? You can, of course, nowadays, you can have very high-end production that's very expensive, um, you know, because there's a lot of controls and a lot of different inputs that people are using. But historically, you know, if it's, if it's a weed growing there, you could use it and it would, it would still be effective to, to, to some level. It's not necessarily a 30% THC flowers or something like that. But if, if it's got THC and you smoke it and you consume it, your body, if it's, you know, experiencing something called endocannabinoid deficiency, which is associated with poor nutrition and, and other factors, it has an impact, right? And so the people who were most likely to be in lower socioeconomic classes were those people who were defined by race to belong to those classes, right? But that doesn't mean it's a racial thing. And that's really what I want to address in our society is drugs are not race, it's it's class, right? And there's different, you know, access to resources that people have and different, you know, acceptable behaviors that people have. And we need to think of that in terms of, of class, not, not race or any sort of other kind of proxy for race um, either. 
Yeah, uh, very interesting. Um, the cannabis has always been a friend to the poor, to the marginalized, to the dispossessed, to the social outcasts of the world. But now, in the last 20 years or so, we've seen the investor class become interested in cannabis. Um, people who come from elite backgrounds, who are not hard laborers, who are not prisoners, have been actually using the plant and, and becoming involved in, in the business. What do you think is going on there, Chris? What does that mean? Um, well, it's, it's a couple of things. One is that it's still something that is very valuable to people that have a few other options. If you look at you know the recent history of medical marijuana in our country, who does that trace to? It traces to you know Vietnam vets that had no really other ways of, of treating things like PTSD, right? They found it effective in those you know, circumstances is people who, you know, suffer, you know, anything from, from cancer to AIDS who, who found relief, right? And those people didn't have very many other options. And as more people have found that it, the plant does serve medicinal needs that aren't served by other substances, um, it's become more widespread, you know, widely accepted. And, you know, I think that the investor class is seeing that, right? They're seeing that this um, provides something that other substances don't. Um, and so, you know, in a positive light, it just means that there's an awakening that people are seeing the value of, of this plant. But, you know, what I do in the book is something I'll, I'll say right now. It also raises questions for me is, are we somehow producing trauma and difficulty and challenge more widely in our society so that more people feel the need for, um, you know, medicinal support, for pharmaceutical support. Um, you know, the, it's an uncomfortable question to ask, but, it, you know, the, the sociological surveys that have been done, you know, for instance, in Colorado since legalization, um, you know, cannabis use and in, in, in consumption is still predominantly associated with, with marginalization, um, you know, lower educational attainment, lower income, um, things like that. So it's, it's uncomfortable to kind of say, you know, it, it, it does have these positive uses, but at the same time, does its expansion of use mean that we're expanding the, the types of trauma and lack of resources and lack of options that, that it's always been associated with? And, and I don't have an answer for that, um, but that's a, you know, a question that I have that we don't know. Um, there's there's academics that study that. It's called sociopharmacology, looking at this the social um, context of pharmaceutical use, whether it's legal, illegal, or gray area. Um, you know, so it's 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 an interesting question to ask. Why is it becoming more common in our society or more accepted in our society? And it's hard to know for sure. Yeah. Well, I think that. Now, we already have a, a pretty clearly established link between trauma and addiction. And while cannabis is, I think, very kind and very gentle in almost every way, uh, it is a psychoactive substance. And some people uh, uh, can seek it out when they're wounded, when they're traumatized. And uh, the question, uh, I think, for us as a society is, is whether we just let it rest there or, or whether we use the awareness that cannabis can also bring, the compassion that it can light in people's hearts to address that trauma, right? And I would say we need both things. I think that we need cannabis 
And I think we need to get to the underlying roots of the trauma. Um, and, and I think that those can be complementary endeavors. But that's another show. <laughs> um, one of the really interesting things that you started talking about, Chris, was the idea of traditional cannabis culture versus a, a global cannabis culture. And you know, we think of, of global cannabis culture starting um, here with um, uh, in the last you know ten or twenty years, but but there was a, this sort of other era of global cannabis culture, and Great Britain played a role in that. Could you talk about that? What that scene was about? Yeah, and I and I'll just start by saying I, I fully agree with you. I mean, we need to take advantage of the plant because it has not been you know people haven't been taking advantage of it in our society, um, you know, and it's it's definitely better to have people using, you know, cannabis than, you know, a whole range of other things, legal and illegal. Um, and, you know, the, the challenge that exists, though, is that we don't have a traditional cannabis culture of any sort in, in our society, right? There's people who, who learn about traditional cannabis cultures. There's, you know, there's, in, in the United States, you know, a relatively small number of folks like Rastafarians who have a tradition of cannabis use and have kind of this social and cultural context around it. But by and large, people don't. I mean, you, you learn about cannabis from whoever sold it to you, you know, back in the black market era or from movies, things like that. And traditional cannabis cultures, you know, and this is, is very, speaking very broadly, you know, they have a context of use, they have controls on use, they have ways of understanding appropriate and inappropriate behaviors. And that's the case for cannabis or, you know, alcohol of different forms or, or, or morphine of, you know, different forms. Um, when it's couched in this kind of, you know, more complex situation of beliefs and social roles and values and things like that, there's better balance of, of you know, risks and, and, and controls. And so the historical, you know, cannabis cultures uh, that we can get a window into, we can only get a little window into them because, you know, they were all recorded by European travelers, at least in the African um, context. We see a little bit there. What we really have a good description of, though, is the role that, you know, of, uh, you know, we have a good understanding of the, the global cannabis culture that existed in the 1800s in the Victorian era. And this was a really important one because this was a globalization. It was global economics. Um, it was really centered in British India and the British basically shipped cannabis, uh, ganja in particular, to London. And there was a big pharmaceutical market there that they, um, you know, they sold to pharmacists, uh, you know, around the world. And so, you know, the, the ganja from India became the medicinal you know, cannabis indica uh, that was sold in these pharmaceutical markets. And this went all over the place. And in some cases, it became these um, pharmaceuticals that were used recreationally. There was cannabis-based cigarettes that were sold through much of the late 1800s that were, you know, in, in Australia, those were the things that got you know, cannabis there. And there's a lot of stories about people using those recreationally. There was tinctures that people would use there. And there was also some medicinal applications that I can, I can talk about separately. But the other aspect of this global pharmaceutical trade was that you had indentured laborers, Indian laborers in different parts of the world. They found that they didn't really need to bring ganja with them because the British pharmacists were selling it. And in the colonies, the pharmacist knew very well how to pick good ganja 
and because their customers were looking for that, these, these Indian laborers. In London and other European markets, they had no idea what they were looking for. And there's a lot of stories of people in India selling like expired goods and bad ganja to these foreigners, you know, and that's what ended up in a lot of the medicines that, that you read about in the Victorian era. So it's a fun story about, you know, colonialism and ignorance and, and, and profits that, that happened in the late 1800s. Well, I was going to ask you all about the grading system that the British had, which is quite fascinating. But I think that I'm going to encourage our audience to buy your book and learn more about how the British colonial empire was involved in the distribution of cannabis and the grading system that they had. We're rolling into the end of our time with Chris. And I, I wanted to check in with you, Chris. What motivated you to to write the book in the first place? Why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, um, I, you know, most cannabis books, there's a little something in the beginning that that tells about why people are motivated to do it. And I, I write about that in my book too. My background is in, I'm a professor. My background is in African studies. So looking at kind of cultures and societies and history within the continent. And, and my focus within that is looking at people-plant interactions. So my earlier research was looking at you know other plants. The baobab tree is one that that many people recognize. But in doing that research, I came across a number of citations of people using cannabis that I'm like, boy, that's interesting. Um, you know, in Western Central Africa, I hadn't heard of cannabis there. You know, I didn't go and look for that plant in particular. And so I went to the cannabis literature that's out there, the histories that are out there, and they're really good in some respects, but they're really bad in terms of Africa. And, and so I kept reading and kept looking, and I found that there's a really rich literature, primary literature, about cannabis and its use in Africa. Um, you know, I, I, you, you talked at the beginning of this episode about, you know, going through card catalogs and things like that. This research really benefited from the investments that, that people have made in digitizing original resources. And so anyone who is interested in doing research on cannabis history, go to you know, websites like Google Books or, you know, there's a, you know, several other ones that are, that are out there as well search historically for different cannabis terms and you can find a lot of information that's out there. Somebody needs to do a, a good study of South Asia, of India, um, to understand what's going on there. You mentioned the Indian Hemp Drugs Commission report from 1894. That remains like the state of the art for understanding cannabis within a society. Um, so I'm really motivated by thinking about the peoples and the places that existed in the past and the present, right? Uh, cannabis is a great plant, but unlike a lot of people who write books about cannabis, I'm more interested in the people and the places and, and what this plant meant and did in those different times and places. Well, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing work that you did. Um, did, you, did you do any on the ground research in Africa? Um, I've lived in West Africa for off and on uh, for some time, but um, other than, um, I guess, uh, social opportunities, uh, so to speak. Um, no, this book is all based on, on historical literature. I did some archival research in uh, Portugal, um, as well as a little bit in, in Britain, but nearly the whole book is published literature that was published in the, the 1800s and earlier. And, and, you know, I was 
kind of shy about admitting that in the past because as a you know academic researcher you should be going and doing difficult things in faraway places but the again the digitization of literature historical literature means that so many things are possible and the the literature on Africa just has not been studied in terms of cannabis and again there's other parts of the world that I encourage people to you know start looking at because there's a lot that's out there that you can do from anywhere you have an internet connection. Well, I'm going to encourage all of our friends in Africa who are listening to this podcast to put together a book tour for Chris. Bring him over to Africa. Let's bring this really important information uh, back to the source. Uh, I think it could be tremendously helpful. And my guess is, Chris, that if you do get to do that book tour in the course of that book tour, uh, many, many people are going to come up to you um, with more interesting leads to, to run down. Um, I can't leave a conversation about cannabis in Africa without touching in on the Beni Riamba. Could you tell us a little bit about who the Beni Riamba were? And, and maybe we can touch a little bit on, on sort of the, a bit of the controversy surrounding understanding who they were. Yeah, so this was an interesting thing, an, an enlightenment for me, right? If you read about Africa in cannabis books, it, the, you know, 98% of the content is about the Bene Riamba. And basically what this was, this was a political movement in the southern, um, what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, sort of right near the, the Angolan border. And there is some really good literature on this that was written by Portuguese traders at the time, right? And this was, uh, you know, after the period of the transatlantic slave trade. And really what they were trading for is rubber um, uh, elephant tusks is what they were trying to get in, in most cases. And they were trading guns for that. So rifles and then also cloth and some other things. Um, and there's, you know, an account of a Portuguese trader sending uh, an African employee out basically. And the employee brought rifles and cannabis to this little, you know, this potentate in this little valley. And there hadn't been cannabis there before. And the guy smoked and he got high and he's like, whoa, this is gonna change the world. And I'm gonna be at the center of that change along with all the rifles that I'm gonna buy from this guy as well, as well. right? And so this guy, took cannabis and started planting it and growing it. He also bought lots and lots and lots of rifles. And there's a lot of stories about the war that this generated, right? But to sustain his political movement, he developed this kind of religious sort of ideas around it. And basically the Bene Riamba means the, the, you know, the, the people of, the, the, of cannabis, right? Is, is kind of what it means. And he required people to smoke heavily. Um, he required production of it. Um, it produced this discourse of friendship and togetherness, but that was actually only enacted. The friendship and togetherness was only enacted after they conquered you, right? So they go in and kill your leader and take over, and now we're all brothers and friends, right? Um, and it, it wasn't particularly benign or malignant within its context. I mean, Southern Democratic or the Repo uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo in like the 1870s to 1890s is what we're talking about here 
was a chaotic place that had a lot of violence. There was still slave trading. There was um, you know, disruption of ecologies through you know, things like elephant hunting to, to, to clearing forests and, and things like that. Um, this was a place that there was a lot of trauma produced and a lot of challenges that people experienced. And so cannabis had its values there, but um, the long-term of this Benariamba movement wasn't a, you know, an acceptance or an embrace of, of cannabis, so to speak, after the movement ended about you know, 1895, cannabis use appeared to have kind of gone down. But what it did is create these false ideas of ethnic groups and those ethnicity identities that, that have a traceable origin. Um, those continue to be the, the pivot point of, of violence throughout the, the past century and a half. Um, there are several specific periods of warfare that, that can be pinpointed to this um, you know, ethnic creation, and, and one of them exists right now. There's violence that traces to this uh, that's currently going on in, in the region around Kananga as a city in the Southern Democratic Republic of the Congo. So it's not a simplistic story. It's, it's complicated with the history of that time. History is often more complicated than it appears at first glance. And when I first learned about the, the Ben Ariamba, the story that I got was that there was this very warlike African tribe. They were cannibals. They fought with all of their neighbors. They were very, very bristly. Uh, and then cannabis came to them and it completely changed their society. Uh, they started smoking it ritually. Uh, every day they would consume cannabis before they did anything of, of importance. They made peace with their neighbors. They stopped being cannibals. Um, and it turns out, I think, that some of the reports that that information was based on really came from like some of the guys that were selling the rifles, right? Some of the Europeans who were selling the rifles. Yeah, and and so basically that you, I mean, that's the that's the story that's presented, right? That oh, you know, cannabis makes everyone friendly and happy to be around, and you know that's taken as the example there. But the story, the history, if you look at where that story came from, it came from a you know two different German explorers that were allies with this guy, and so they relied on this guy to get them through places where they didn't want German explorers there. They relied on these guys to provide them, you know. You know, uh, you know, servants to carry all their stuff from point A to point B, and so they they wrote glowing, you know, biographies of the guy, and they tried to present him as like, you know, a way that they could get in and control resources in that area. But if you if you read the accounts of non-Germans at the time in the in the place, Portuguese observers, Belgian ob observers they described, you know, the leaders of the Benariamba as just these horribly vicious like warlords. And, you know, and, and those, those accounts aren't, you know, represented in the cannabis histories. You know, I, I didn't live in that place at that time, so I don't really know what's true. But I do know that there's some very different views of, of these folks than what have been presented in the, in the cannabis literature. Well, history is often written just by the winners. And I think that for me, as a cannabis person, uh, so much of, of what I was taught about cannabis uh, ended up being false. It, it ended up being propaganda, uh, all of these negative ideas about the plant. And so as I was doing my own research and I came across positive examples of cannabis use, a culture that actually incorporated the lessons that 
I believe the cannabis plant teaches us, that was a very, very attractive prospect for me. And so um, uh, I was very taken with the Ben Ariamba. And I'm not sure that I'm not still very taken with the Ben Ariamba, but I think that that Chris's story here outlines a um, a danger that that we all cannabis people face, right? And that is that we are so attached to the plant, we love it so much, we have been so oppressed for so long, we have suffered so much trauma because of that, that we take any positive sign that we see very, very readily, very quickly, and incorporate it into being our truth. And I understand that, I've done it myself, I'll probably keep on doing it, um, but I think it's it's also important for us to remember that um, we want to get to the truth. We want to really understand what's going on with cannabis and with this plant, what has happened with cannabis uh, and this plant. And so we always need to be rigorous and uh, and really dig and dig deep, deep and, and think hard uh, about all of the things that that the history has to offer us. And now we're able to learn so much more uh, because of people like Chris. Chris, there's I don't know, another 20 questions on my list that I'd like to ask you, but we're running out of time here for this show. Um, let me check in with you though. Um, if you could tell us about some of your other work that the audience might be interested in, any upcoming projects, how we can stay in touch with you. Yeah, and I, I just to, to respond to your, your just previous comment, like it's just really important to understand what different literature is doing right? And my work is in academic history. And there are other works that are political advocacy. And those have different roles in, in shaping ideas about the world. And a lot of the knowledge that we have nowadays of cannabis historically came from works in the 1960s and 70s that were written by pro-marijuana activists. And their purpose was not necessarily to know history, but their purpose was to frame history in a way that would advance their political agenda, which I, you know, I think is a positive political agenda. Um, but we also have to understand that like there are historical facts and we have to grapple with the fact that this plant has a checkered history, right? And telling stories like Queen Victoria used marijuana, which is traceably false, doesn't help anybody. Right when we have this very clear history that the cannabis does help people who have few options, um, and that's really the the important thing to kind of understand is like what does the history actually tell us? Um, and it tells us a lot of things that are very relevant nowadays. That you know we've I I argue and I think that we're past the point of needing to come up with these historical framings to support a political agenda. Let's instead you know, embrace the political moment that that agenda making has been very successful. And let's look at what we can actually know about this so we can manage the plant better and not go into it blindly and saying, oh, it's going to be happy and everything's going to be fine. Let's be real and say that there's going to be issues. Let's understand from the past what those issues might be and figure out how to, um, um, you know, how to, to avoid those problems that we can see from the past. And that's really where I'm coming from. Um, where am I going? Um, 
I have to say that the whole pandemic thing has kind of uh, disrupted my research to some degree because that the job of teaching at the university has become a lot more laborsome uh, because we've shifted so much stuff online. But generally speaking, what I'm looking at is um, I'm still looking at some of the linguistic data that I report in the book. Um, I'm shifting to look a little bit more at hemp in the United States, which has another very uh, you know complex history with with labor in particular. Um, and then I'd like to also look at South Asia and look at, you know, the, the pharmaceutical markets that existed there in the um, 1800s, because there's great, great data on it, but it just hasn't been um, analyzed. But once I get back into the swing of research because of the teaching burden that's going on right now, then I'll, I'll, I'll really emphasize those projects. All right. And uh, your book is available where and how can our audience stay in touch with you? Yeah, so the book is through Duke University Press, which means you can buy it pretty much anywhere you can buy books. Uh, it's you know easy on Amazon or any of those other um, uh, online platforms. Um, you can reach me through my email, uh, which is Duval, like my last name, D-U-V-A-L-L, at unm.edu. Um, and you can find me at the Department of Geography at University of New Mexico and track me down that way. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for being with us here today, for writing the book, for helping us understand this plant that our audience uh, loves so much. It's been uh, really incredible for me to read Chris's book, uh, to sit and talk with him, to get to understand some of the things that he's discovered. We're entering, I think, a, a new era in cannabis. I think that Chris is right that we're coming to the time where we don't need to cherry pick facts in order to make the case about cannabis. The facts are there, the science is there, it's very solid, it's very well established. And we as a people, we as a people who love this plant, who are incorporating it into our lives, who believe that it has lessons to teach us, need to understand everything that there is to learn about it so that we can build that traditional cannabis culture so that we can have customs and traditions and mores about when and how we consume cannabis and how we think about the plant. I think that there is a danger that's looming right now because most of the people who are in charge of telling the story about cannabis all around the world don't understand really what a, a traditional cannabis culture is. They're more interested in commodifying cannabis and making as much money off of it as quickly as they can. And so I think that it's very important for those of us who have a personal connection to the plant, who love the plant, to learn and learn from the past and take the best from it as we build this new, modern, traditional cannabis culture altogether. A special word to those of you and I know that you're out there, who are in difficult positions. You may be in Africa, you may be in South Asia, you may be in China, you may be someplace where you have to hide your cannabis use, you may have been arrested, you may be facing trial. Perhaps you're even in prison and somehow this podcast is making its way into you. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances are, know this, you are not alone. You are part of a community, a global community of hundreds of millions of people who love this plant, who have learned the same lessons from it that you have. 
and who have developed a common value system. And we will not forget you. We will not stop and we will not rest until everybody in the world who needs this plant has safe and legal and affordable access to it and our very last prisoner comes home. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Stay strong. Be safe.